I'm Harriet Smith and welcome to Dietitian Cafe where we will be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics from studying to academia, clinical to industry and the NHS to freelancing. Today we have with us Louise Symington, a registered dietitian with over 15 years of experience in the NHS, private and charity sectors. Her background includes running GP clinics, food policy work with charities such as Sustain and the National Trust, and product sourcing for crush fit food and juice bars across London. She has also advised the government on DEFRA, which is the Department of Environmental, Farming and Rural Affairs, on their green food project. Hi Louise, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I think being the sustainable dietitian that you are on social media, um, I want to jump straight on in and ask you, um, are you are you a plant-based eater yourself? Yeah, I would actually say I'm a plant-based eater and it's quite interesting you ask that because the definition of plant-based eating actually covers a really wide spectrum of eating habits and it could go from absolutely no meat to having just a little bit of meat um, and I'm one of those people that choose to have a little bit of meat and fish although I am quite particular about where my meat comes from because um, having worked at the National Trust and having been interested in food and farming I do I do believe if you choose to eat meat it's really good to support farmers that adopt ethical and environmentally sensitive farming practices and I feel it's really important to support them because if we don't we might just get flooded by um, imports from other countries that don't meet such standards so yeah and how can we when we're choosing our meat or dairy products for example try to to source more sustainable products what should we be yeah. looking for it's a really really good question I think for most people you're going to be shopping at the supermarket and a quick win would be uh, choosing products which are organic because with that certification it doesn't cover just environmental farming practices but it also covers animal welfare practices so when you buy organic meat or eggs this also ensures the welfare standards of the animals if you're looking at just welfare you'll be looking at the freedom food mart um the RSPCA assured mark, sorry it changed from, um, and that's symbolised with sort of a, some wings and a bird. And um, if you're not shopping at a supermarket, you can also look for terms such as free range or pasture fed meats. So um, I think that you've got two choices, you're either going to look for some assured standards in the supermarkets or try and get to know your farmers at local markets or um, actual farms to try and source animal friendly and ethical products. Mm, that's really useful tips, thank you. Um, how did you get into food sustainability? Where does your interest in this area stem from? Yeah, well food sustainability, actually it's a bit dark but what happened was during the 90s there was a scandal and BSE. it was based around... And when we ate the, the cows that were infected with beef cattle BSE, we then developed, or some people um, developed CJD, which is mad cow disease. Yeah. yeah, and so I was really, really fascinated with how something like this could be passed into the food chain and have such horrific consequences on people. And I was really interested in the way the scientific and political coverage was, was played out. Uh, but what it, what it really highlighted to me was how how our farming infrastructure had changed. So we always imagined beef and cattle and lambs to be running around on these beautiful green fields, chewing the grass, the sun would be shining. Um, but actually they were shoved into huge sort of 
barns and cages and just fed this 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 high protein food which was essentially the waste of other animals which had no paper trail and so that then sparked my interest in the, the the link between how our food is produced and human health and how did you progress from having an interest in that area to going on to studying a master's in sustainability in the food industry at London Met University yeah. so there was a big big jump so <clears throat> when i in the 90s we really didn't have a lot of access to the internet and the closest thing that my mum and i could find that, that covered my sort of interest in this area was actually a nutrition and dietetics course and I was really disappointed I couldn't do my dissertation on my cow disease it, had, it was on, on calcium and osteoporosis anyway I was a dietitian for a while and I was working for the NHS and I there were things that did bother me like for example the amount of sip feeds that were given out half half used and just thrown away the way the food was cooked given to people it wasn't eaten it was just thrown away so I saw a lot of these issues but I just, I really didn't know how to make a change. And also working in the eating disorders unit, they were sourcing such cheap food, battery farm eggs. They were sourcing sandwiches from Wales. When we were in London, they could have been made in a kitchen. So I did see all these things throughout my dietetic career, but it, it took 10 years for me to really research and find a course. And literally suddenly a course then, which was um, sustainability in the food industry popped up and I left my job, worked part-time and took it up straight away so that I could try and adapt that course to fit in with the the work that I wanted to do in the future. And what did that, I know the, the degree unfortunately is no longer running mm. at London Met, you have said that there's a very similar one in food policy at White City University. Yeah, so uh, there's a Masters in Food Policy, I believe run by Tim Long and his colleagues at White City. And I believe that it does cover food sustainability principles and food system stuff and mm. lots of public health stuff. In terms of the degree of the master's that you did at London Met, what exactly does a master's in sustainability in the food industry involve? What were you doing on the course? Yeah, well, one of the things that I found really, really interesting was how to convert the food how you work out the carbon footprint of food. So we all know how, you know, when you go to uni, you measure the calories by burning a peanut and calculating how much the temperature rises or you use mass spectrometry to look at um, the nutrients. And I was really fascinated to work out uh, the environment, environmental impact from food. So, for example, my, my case study was a biscuit. And I basically had to look at all the different ingredients from the wheat that was grown look at all the chemical impacts from ab agriculture, look at all the emissions from transport, look at all the electricity that was used to make it and basically map it all out and at each stage convert it into basically carbon emissions or carbon equivalent emissions and then add it up to get the footprint. And I know you look a little bit horrified. <laughs> it is, it is a, it's a crazy thing. It's called life cycle analysis. But what I found really, really interesting was that you could, yeah, you could see the nutritional quality of the food, but you could also get the carbon footprint, which is just one measure of sustainability. There are many others. And it really helped me understand the food system and, as I said, the, the resources needed to be used and how resource it, um, intensive it can be at each stage. And how, what was the carbon footprint of the biscuit? Do you, oh, it was, <laughs> was, it, it, was some, it was only something like 50 grams of carbon dioxide a minute equivalents per 100 grams it was it was quite small um actually what what you'll find is things that have that have a very very high carbon footprint do tend to be the animal products the meats mm. and the dairies mm. um because you have to take into account 
the the plant-based food that's already fed to them that's already been produced that is then fed to them and then lost during the lifetime of the animal so you've lost a lot of resources and energy before the animals even slaughtered for food production mm-hmm. so general general rule of thumb is anything that's not animal origin generally has a higher carbon footprint than plant-based origin um, but that doesn't include things like the water footprint or any of the other metrics that you can be used to measure sustainability. Mm. I think more and more people are becoming aware of the importance mm. of food sustainability, environmental and ethical issues. Um, how, in your capacity as a freelance dietitian working with the industry, how are the industry responding to this increased interest or awareness in this area? It's changed phenomenally since I started. Uh, did my master's 10 years ago I mean in my master's 10 years ago we were talking about you know maybe making more mushroom burgers and bean burgers well in the past 10 years the plant-based burgers increased hugely not just with um, using beans and pulses but the meat alternatives we've got things like the impossible burger using interesting fungi to create like a a sort of a bloody meat type texture you've got um, something that we thought was from a science, science fiction movie which is 10 years ago, which is now growing um, uh, animal proteins in, in labs, um, which are worry, worry some scientists growing muscle pl- um, protein from a test tube. But, um, you know, it, it might have to be the way forward. And you've done some really interesting work with the food industry to help them to become more sustainable in, mm. in their product development stages. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the work that you've been involved with? Mm. Well, um, I've been involved with a plant-based baby food startup, and that's been really, really interesting because uh, one of the things that they wanted it to, many they wanted to have achieve many things, um, and certainly I think for the most important thing is is being able to help them with sourcing. So, for example, making sure that the um, grains that they use are the most sustainable they can. So, for example, oats can be grown in England, brilliant. But actually, if you're looking to source rice from another part of the world, that's actually quite resource intensive. It actually um, gives off quite a lot of methane. So what you can do is not completely get rid of foods, but kind of twist and shape or the recipe development so it can be as sustainable as it can be for that that meal that you're producing and having lots of different beans and grains and things like that can be Mm -hmm. really good and you've also been involved with um, some charities such as sustain and the national trust what Mm. what did that work involve well sustain was a really really interesting that was quite practical i i helped with their sustainable food policy and with that template, I was able to go into universities um, and catering sectors and then talk about sustainable food and healthy food and help them form their catering contracts so that they then understood what they were buying and why they were buying this, this healthy and sustainable food. Um, but one of the other key things that I did was also did in-house promotion. So when they were serving up the new menu, the ethical and environmental benefits of that menu were also promoted. So, for example, with meat, I think quite a few of the students or the public would be, you know, they'd get a bit annoyed if they were given smaller portions of meat in line with the World Cancer Research Fund. But if you back up while you do it and you present it in a certain way, then they understand where you're coming from. So, uh, yeah, it was it was about catering, helping them with catering contracts, recipe development and the marketing 
um, and, and prom health promotion around it so that you give, give the whole package. And with the National Trust, I did um, more food sustainability. Um, I did some a lot of food policy work and ethical sourcing and things like that. And you've, more recently, you've also been involved with some community initiatives, such mm. as the community allotments that you've been working yeah. on with children and their parents. Mm. Firstly, can you tell us a bit more about that? And also, why is it important to be educating children from a young age about food sustainability? Yeah, well, this is, this is one of my... Um, my most loved projects actually because <clears throat> I did find as I um, went down the path of nutrition and dietetics and sustainability my love of real food sort of waned a little bit because I was behind the laptop a lot and I was dealing with technology a lot so to find a project where I can actually start to grow food again and and with children and, and families that don't have high incomes is, was really really good it's good for the soul um, and what it actually involves is I have to look at um, all the funding options that are given out. So um, the Brighton and Ho Food Partnership um, gives out a list of funders and these funders are able to give money for projects with good causes. So I have to write out a funding application and I have to basically detail why my project deserves their money. So I might have to find bits of evidence like why is what what could, is there a link between food growing in children and healthy eating and health outcomes and things like that so there is a bit of paperwork which is interesting but then once if you do get awarded the funding then you can run these projects with children and um my one is specifically designed for uh families that might might be on lower incomes that don't have access to a garden who may not be able to afford forest school or or you know have a garden to grow food in themselves and I think it's really important because you know we we want children to understand where food comes from we want them to taste food like some of them never knew what sweet corn looked like so some of them never seen a potato being dug up so we can do that with them we can cook with them we can get them to taste things experience things and I think the other thing from a nature perspective is that, you know, we always talk about caring for the environment. Well, if you haven't had the experience of nurturing um, fruit, vegetables or working with the environment, how can you expect children to care about it? They need to be in this kind of environment where they can, can do it. And um, I think it's going to be important to help them feel empowered and feel that they can do something for the environment. Because I know myself, when I look at my daughter, I think, oh... I really feel sorry for you because I've never had to grow up with the threat of climate change. All these little children are going to have to grow up with the threat of climate change. Mm, mm. But if you nurture them from a young age and show them what they can do as opposed to what, what could be coming, you can really empower them, give them confidence, make them interested and, um, yeah, give them something positive, positive to think about rather than, oh, it's all doom and gloom. Mm. Definitely, and um, you've got a young family yourself. Mm. And later on in the podcast, we'll talk about how you incorporate food sustainability yeah. into your own family and their diet. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, the private practice clients that you work with, because you mm. continue to see some one-to-one -one clients, how do you link the sustainability side of things in with the nutritional advice that you're giving to your patients? Yeah, well, I've got private clients, so <clears throat> depending on our initial conversation, I'll gauge with them whether or not they've already got a pre-interest in environmental ethical or animal welfare concerns and so I'd have a much stronger emphasis and be much more explicit about spelling things out in those consultations but as a sustainable dietitian I'm also about helping people make sustainable healthy eating changes so some people we do come for weight management and are much more interested in that as opposed to the ethical and environmental things so for example if I've got someone and 
the environments or the ethics is, is a sideline. You can just weave it in quite... Um, discreetly. Discreetly. So, for example, when we talk about their favourite meals or way to, ways to adapt their favourite meals or meal ideas, it literally could be giving them meal ideas that are based around the seasons, whether it be meat or veg. Uh, today, for example, um, I had someone that was, we were talking about weight management. She had a lot of heavy periods. She wondered if she was anemic. We, she liked red meat. So I talked about healthy red meat recommendations and what that might actually look like in portion size and frequency throughout the week in, in a practical way. Mm. So, I mean, the World Cancer Research Fund recommends about 80 grams of cooked red cooked meat a day. Now, I wouldn't want anyone to have to do that. They're not going to go away and do that. So it would be like saying, well, maybe just have red meat two or three times a week at the most. So you can weave it in. Um, and um, you, can, it's, you can really take people's lead as to whether or not they're interested and want to go further with any other things. So, mm. Mm. so it's very much a, a patient-centred approach that you take. Yeah. 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 Um, recently, the British Dietetic Association have launched their new One Blue Dot campaign, mm. which um, focuses on food sustainability. Mm. And for our listeners who are perhaps not aware or familiar with this campaign, can you, I know you weren't involved with creating it yourself, but can you explain what the campaign does and how this could potentially lead to future directions in our profession? Mm. So it, One Blue Dot is an excellent resource. It's described as a toolkit for dietitians to read and use to support them um, and help them guide their patients with ethical food choices. So it, it, what I recommend people do is they actually print out the doc, well, have one printed a copy of the document because it's actually quite big and there are quite potentially quite complicated uh, issues that you need to kind of get your head around. So you really need to digest it before you give out the advice. Um, but ultimately it does um, summarise the most evidence-based sustainability principles and that, that's useful because you're going to always hear about the argument for beef and the counter argument against beef and whether veganism can save the planet or not. So what this does is it really just cuts through all that, gives you evidence based information and lists t 10 top tips. So the first one, it gives you red meat recommendations. The second one talks about all the different plant proteins that you should prioritize. Um, tip three is about uh, choosing sustainable fish and the fish portion sizes because that's that's quite an important one as well. and what what should the fish portion sizes be in terms of sustainability yeah about they say about two portions of week week, week one of which is oily and the 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 portion size that department of health give, give is about 140 grams mm -hmm. so the, and those two portions of fish at 140 grams should give you enough of the nutrients needed yeah. for good health yeah. especially in terms of omega-3 so, so to stick with them mm -hmm. um you know if people are eating fish twice a day seven days a week from mm -hmm. unsustainable sources really it'd be then sort of rebalancing it to plant-based proteins sure alternative. the tip on dairy consumption and calcium i do find that um although the british Dietetic association say cut down um you know the, the british nutrition foundation and other organizations do still go back to the three portions of dairy a day uh, however the bda do have a really nice list of um, plant-based calcium sources which you have in that resource list as 
Yes, because of course, a, a lot of the time when people do choose the, particularly the organic plant-based milks, I know things are changing and companies are fortifying them, um, mm. but that's sometimes a concern, isn't it? Not getting mm. enough of the nutrients that you typically mm. find in animal products. Yeah, this is one of this is one of the things I love about sustainability is that there aren't ever right or wrongs with it. And with organic organic plant milks, yes, they're much more sensitive to the environment, but in terms of what they do for human health potentially very little because if they're not fortified with calcium b12 iodine and vitamin d really you're essentially putting a bit of dyed water on your cereal and and that's that's water that's having to be shipped around a country and have carbon emissions associated with it um so yeah it's a tricky one so yes the plant milks they can't you can't be certified organic if you're fortified ultimately because it's supposed to be a sort of uh, an organic product so that, that's quite an interesting one. Uh, other tips, seasonal and local food, um, choosing tap water over fruit juice and, and squashes and tea and coffee. That's a really interesting one, actually, because um, fruit juice does have quite, quite high environmental impact if you compare it to just a piece of fruit. If you look at a glass of apple juice compared to an apple, it's, it's a heck of a lot higher in its, its environmental footprint because of the, the, the processing and storage. So really um sensible tips like that and then information on packaging and food packaging and food waste as well so it's a really valuable resource for yeah. for dietitians and nutritionists to have a read over if they haven't already yeah absolutely yeah. definitely um and they've got they, they've got some lovely sort of um sort of appendix so that you've got a, a list of low meat meals so for example instead of having just spaghetti bolognese with just meat it's spaghetti and meat bolognese with pasta and they've also got some other sections on about potential nutritional deficiencies uh, or no, potential nutrients to look out for if you're going vegan and, and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, that's quite a useful resource as well. And a little bit more of the latest research on plant-based proteins. And So, of course, the, the One Blue Dot campaign is... Um, predominantly launched by the British Dietetic mm-hmm. Association, but you're also involved with educating medical students through the charitable organisation Culinary Medicine mm. UK. Um, tell me more about what, what work you've been doing with them and how will this additional knowledge improve future doctors' clinical practice? Yes, so the Culinary Medicine uh, module is two, uh, is two sort of chapters. Uh, and the first chapter is just a basic introduction into um, the healthy what a healthy and sustainable diet is actually made of and one of the things that I do a quick overview is is how to measure the health of the planet um, looking at all the different sustainability metrics so we took to, talked about the carbon footprint but we also look at the water footprint um, things like land use biodiversity loss all these other metrics ethics um, as well that can be used to measure a sustainable diet and then we go over all the current research on um, what makes up a healthy and sustainable diet from, from a UK perspective, what's, go, what's going on in the UK, where are we, where do we want to go. We look at the plant-based eating spectrum, all the different diets that that might cover, dietary patterns, all the potential deficiencies or nutrients that they might have to look out for if someone is, say, on a lacto, a lacto-vegetarian diet to a vegan or a flexitarian um, and then we also look at basic things like waste and packaging. And I sort of highlight to doctors that 
you know, in, cl- in clinic, if, if, if you can't remember all this, the little facts, actually things like managing food waste and packaging is a really good thing to focus on because it's technically really easy to get your head around, head around and it's something that everyone can do, whatever your medical condition. Um, because I think with culinary medicine, what I do touch on in the next section is, is personal sustainability. So applying those principles to people who are underweight, overweight, on a budget, that kind of thing. So um, that's covered in the first chapter. And then in the second chapter, we go into like a lot more detail about how to apply this to individuals and their medical conditions. Um, and then I do some case studies as well and some meal ideas. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. You just mentioned that you've you talk about how to adapt the, the advice in terms of people who might be, for example, from lower income um, yeah. families. And obviously we're seeing a huge rise in the number of people using food banks at the moment. Mm. So how can these people, if, if they want to eat more sustainably, do so when we know that often the cost of organic products, for example, are more expensive? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yes, uh, the, the whole organic diet... Um, the organic versus conventional argument will always it will always go on and we are, yes in some ways organic food is is it is better for the environment whether or not there's substantial evidence to say the impact of organic food is is going to affect be better for our health it's still it's still people are still arguing about it the most important thing is getting the volume of fruit and veg in not whether or not it's it's organic or not so i think with people from the food bank funnily enough um if you're getting food that's in tins i mean at least with tins you don't get any wastage so you can have um tinned fruit uh tinned fruit um tinned vegetables without salt on you can get lots of like grains that are um dried that also don't involve food wastage so there's quite quite a lot quite a lot of things that you can do with the food from the food bank food is one thing but it's then getting those people from the food bank giving them cooking classes i know in our community allotment we wanted to kind of link up with our local food bank um, and give them a flyer and say here's your food why don't you come down to community allotment pick some veg we're now going to make something amazing together and do you know what? I'm really sorry to say it didn't quite take off the ground. Mm. What we, I think we've got to be careful because, you, you know, we, we, I'm very lucky. I've got a house. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say I've got a house and a kid and a husband and we work. So we think these things are really important. But when you've got people queuing up for the food bank, they need to get back home. They've got a lot of other priorities in their life that they need to manage. And maybe they, they might not have the time or the inclination to spend an afternoon going and doing something great down the allotment we, we just don't know what their lifestyles are like so mm. it's not to say it can't be tried again yeah but um yeah. i do think there's potential a lot of potential for these projects it's just sort of selling the benefits maybe and making it accessible yeah and from what you've said it seems like just making a few small changes mm. can actually have a meaningful impact it doesn't have to necessarily be an all-or-nothing approach yes exactly exactly uh, and, and little things like as well as like I think having, um, you know, making sure that the food that you buy, things like, for example, fizz- fizzy drinks, Coca-Cola, all that kind of thing, they're really, really cheap and they provide a lot of calories, but the plastic, you know, the use of the plastic's really, really big. So there are so many ways that you can do things differently. So um, 
how can dietitians or nutritionists who are listening to this podcast incorporate some of the principles you've mentioned relating to food sustainability into their own clinical practice and bearing in mind that some of these dietitians will be working on busy NHS wards where they'll have Mm. very little time with their patients Mm -hmm. well I think as I said having the one blue dot toolkit there is is a great thing to make a quick reference to um but the best thing really is to kind of just up the plant-based content of the meals doesn't mean to say you have to cut out meat and dairy but it would be always like looking for ways to sneak in pulses or lentils or other kind of like legumes into sort of meat-based meals uh increasing just increasing the vegetable content of the dinners moving it to half a plate could make some significant changes um getting people to cut out fruit juice for example um and having waters or you can always ask people as well if they're interested you know when you say oh what would you like for breakfast scrambled egg oh well would you be interested in knowing a little bit about um the welfare i don't know ethical eggs or something like that and just gauge whether they're interested they're going to say yes or no and if they're if it's a yes then you can have some resources to hand to show them a bit about food labeling or direct them to a really good website um which one blue dot has in there for for Mm. for future Mm. reference and are there any good websites that you recommend dietitians who are interested in this area look at sustain is brilliant um they've got brilliant loads of really good um resources especially around fish um animal welfare and labeling there are some other um there are some really really interesting websites uh organizations called compassion and world farming but they do get they do go into quite a lot of uh, detail there. So if you're looking for quick wins or short shortcuts, these are these are good websites to go to. Okay. Great, thank you. And in terms of the training of dietitians, mm. do you feel that food sustainability is sufficiently incorporated into our current training? I know you haven't um, necessarily been involved with creating the university courses, but do you also think there's an opportunity in the future as the profession moves forward for including more on public health, food systems, ethical issues in the mm. curriculum? Absolutely. Um, I'd probably say, yeah, we, we, we weren't allowed to. I mean, it was a long time ago, but I do remember our um, lecturer saying you're not allowed to bring any kind of political or ethical bias in to your consultations. And I strongly believe that. So, um that that aside, I do think that we should still be uh, educated not only on the environmental sides of things, but the ethical sides of things as well. And that's probably be my only comment on One Blue Dot is that I do believe we need to bring ethics, um, and and that's just not animal welfare, but that's human ethics as well in uh, ethical supply chains into the mix um, on 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 advising good food. Um, I don't know if the food sustainability is a core part of dietetic training but i'm very aware that the outpro foundation do run symposiums and seminars quite regularly and that they're held at universities that run nutrition and dietetics courses because mm. i've seen them and I've, people have sort of tagged me and things that they've done mm. there's some brilliant free resources as well out there and um, nutrilicious the communications company have two webinars one is on one blue dot and the other one is um but the eat lancet they're actually two quite different documents, um, but maybe we'll save that conversation for a different time. But they're really good to have um, a look at as well. Yeah, we can definitely link to that in our podcast notes yeah. as well. On a wider level, what structural change in the NHS do you think um, 
could be implemented to better incorporate food sustainability into their catering practices? Mm. So when I worked for, with Sustain a while back, um, some of the projects we did was to try and encourage hospitals to buy more healthy and sustainable food. And hospitals that were in-house had more control over it. Um, hospitals that were um, supplied by Sodexo, you really have to rely on Sodexo to adopt any healthy and sustainable practices. I think Sodexo is doing a little bit um, and some hospitals, the will is there, but really ultimately it is down to funding and money because where the hospitals, the allowance for a daily meal is so tiny, it really doesn't allow a lot of wriggle room to buy high welfare meat or high welfare eggs um, or, or, or organic milk or anything like that. I think that one of the, the big pushes could be really to get much more plant proteins and plant-based meals in. And I know we chatted about this area, but there was a quite an interesting campaign that was started by the Vegan Society um, alongside um, a chap called The Dirty Vegan, who's a chef who's been on BBC TV. And they were trying to get more vegan-based dishes into the NHS. So something like that perhaps could be the starting point as opposed to expecting them to spend all the extra money on high welfare foods. When we go back to the point we were discussing earlier about making mm. very small changes which mm. can have a, a big impact, mm. presumably things like trying to reduce wastage and bulk buying are also going to be important in the NHS? Yes, absolutely. And um, bulk buying is really important. And one of the things that we try to get hospitals to do if they're in-house or universities to do or schools even, <laughs> was to get together with other universities or schools or hospitals who shared the same values um, and, and get some get joint buying contracts so you could basically buy bulk for a bigger discount and then share that between you. So it would take collaborative work between the institutions to do that. Mm. And what about oral nutrition supplement companies which are commonly provided in the hospital mm. setting? Is there more that they could be doing in terms of food sustainability, do you think? Yeah, I... I think one of the things that I've noticed about the supplement companies is that they they don't really promote the recyclability of their products very much. Um, I know my um, mother was taken ill recently and was given some supplements and I really had to look at the bottom bottle to see the little recycling symbol and it was HDPE. But you have to find it and then you have to work out whether HDPE is recycled by your at home or in the hospital. So um, I think it should be much more obvious on the packet. It shouldn't just be hidden away. And it should be obvious on the websites. And the websites and the companies within the marketing and the packaging should should really shout it out because this needs to be something that pe people can see quite easily. It's like front of... Front of, front of packet front labeling. Of packet, that's it, FOP. Packaging, it needs to shout out that you can do this. And and that's actually, that's a selling point for these things. It's, it's It shouldn't be something that's hidden away. And... Um, in terms of in bottle recycling, it would be amazing if all hospitals had their own recycling bottle bins um, in the wards. I don't know if any do. If you know any that do, please let me know. Um, it'd be interesting to hear. I certainly know a baby food um, company was um, championed because it used to um, sell baby food pouches, but every place that sold them all had a little bin that you used to put your little fatty pouches back in, and that, that's called closed loop recycling so something like that would be brilliant mm -hmm. and what about you know if you had the wastage from the leftover milk or gloop maybe it could be put into i don't know the bio 
some kind of make it into a biofuel or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, something to do. What, what could we do with the waste? There's all sorts of things. I'm sure you've given the, the nutritional supplement companies a few ideas to work on yeah. for the new year. <laughs> so as a mother with a young family yourself, how do you incorporate everything that you've been talking about in terms of food sustainability and ethical factors into your own family's approach to diet and lifestyle? Mm, I think the main thing is um, trying to eat around the seasons as much as possible. It's not always easy um, because uh, 50% of our food is important and certainly there are certain times of the year we, we can't get, get sustainable food. Um, and I think... One of the things we also try and do is 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 go plastic free a lot. They're they're the sort of the easy wins. The harder ones with a little daughter who's a bit of a picky eater. And one of the things that I find challenging is that she absolutely loves cherry tomatoes and she loves avocado, which you know some people go, oh great, your child loves this. But I know cherry tomatoes, especially out of season, are really really they're the worst things. Um, they're covered in plastic. They're quite greenhouse gas intensive. Um, and I know avocados are putting farmers, developing countries out of business. So what I tend to do is I do tend to allow her to have some. I try and pick fair trade avocados, but I actually kind of have, I don't know if this is right or not, but I kind of have one rule for her and one rule for us. So me and my husband eat a really well-balanced diet. We don't really need avocados, but if my daughter's had a really rubbish week or she's not eaten her school dinner then she might have avocado for her main meal. And things like in her lunch boxes, she loves cherry tomatoes. So I've discovered some fair trade, fairly traded um, cherry tomatoes that come in a paper box from, from the co-op. So I try and counterbalance it that way. Um, so yes, for me and my husband, it's quite easy. But for my, my little ones, sometimes what kids like aren't always the most and sustainable yeah but I, I think those are your issues are, are things that lots of other parents mm. and dietitians are going to be able to relate to and it's really important that you're emphasizing it's not this all-or-nothing approach it can be very yeah. adaptable and small changes have big effects that's definitely. right yeah so um just before we wrap up louise do you have any other advice for our listeners who are keen to get involved with food sustainability you've mentioned maybe they should read the one blue dot campaign mm. you've um, listed some useful resources do you have any other advice um it, it depends it, there's always something to do um if you're in a hospital uh, you, I, I don't know I've heard hospitals have sustainability champions I don't know if there'd be capacity for a dietitian to find out if there could be a sustainability champion um you could do small things around your office or on your ward maybe if you're a dietitian you could contact your supplement company and see if you could work something out with them uh if you're a dietitian working in the food industry um so there's plenty of resources available online that you can get your hands on that can can help with that and um if you're working freelance it's really just about kind of educating yourself but also maybe practicing a little bit at home so that you can then advise these tips almost off off your head when you off the top of your head when you're in clinic so it doesn't f become like an alien thing mm. there's another thing you can do is you can also look look out look what's going on with local food projects i mean now in brighton and hove we're really lucky we've got the brighton and hove food projects there's loads of community recycling schemes composting schemes allotment schemes but maybe there could be things that you could do you could volunteer for an environmental charity you could write a blog post for one you could I mean, I've got, it's all sorts of things so spread yourself wide 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of opportunities out there for everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's been your biggest lesson learned since you've been working in the field of dietetics? Would you say? Um, my biggest lesson learned. Well, I suppose in terms of my career, that I think my biggest lesson actually was that having a child wasn't going to ruin my career <laughs> it sounds awful but I um from a personal point of view I I did my master's at the age of about 30 30 35 30 that's right 30 and I was like oh I finally found what I really want to do and I love it and I was I did because I, I had to volunteer for free for ages with these charities and then, then after that when I finally got on the rung I got to about 35 36 37 and I thought oh I'm really scared to have a child because I'm never going to get back into it. Um, and I had a child and I did sort of move out this sort of arena for a while. But actually, it's almost like food and sustainability and nutrition caught back up with me. And it's actually taken me in another direction that I didn't see myself going, which is even better. So it's freelance and sustainability rather than working for someone and doing sustainability. So it's yeah, that was a big learning experience. And that leads on to my next question, which is, what's been your biggest achievement to date? Oh, right. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it, I'd probably say my biggest professional achievement was um, finding the Masters, I think. Finding the Masters was harder than actually doing the Masters, because it was quite rare back then. And um, personally, it was probably having a baby. <laughs> so it's quite a big thing, thing for me, and that's why I didn't have another one. <laughs> Well, it's, it's very interesting how it's um, you've managed to integrate your sort of family life with your real love of food yeah. sustainability and it's all come together with your freelance work. Yeah, absolutely. If it wasn't for my daughter, I'd have never ended up volunteering at my community allotment that was for children and I would never have found that had I had Amber. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of all tied up quite nicely. So, Louise, to finish us off, we are obviously at the Dietitian Cafe today and we have to ask you, what would be your last ever meal? Oh, my last ever meal would be, um, I really like peanut sauce and I really like um, sticky tofu. So it'd be something like a sticky tofu noodle stir fry with lots of peanut sauce. Mm, yeah. Sounds good. Does, doesn't it? Making us hungry. I know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Louise. And thank you for our listeners who've joined us today. Our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming soon. Thank you.